Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok, and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Inside the Hive. I'm Emily Jane Fox. I'm here with Joe Hagan, as usual. Joe, hello. Welcome to another week, another episode. You know, for the last many years, we've been waiting for Infrastructure Week, and it finally happened. Well, we, we've had Infrastructure Week before. It's just been an empty Infrastructure Week. And this week, it feels like... There was no there there. There's, there's some there there this year. I actually, I love... The concept of Infrastructure Week, I've loved it from the get-go, even when it meant nothing, because I think it is the easiest and best political move that either party could make. It is obviously very expensive. It will obviously mean raised taxes. It will mean a lot of legislative work. But it is the biggest win for any single politician to push this through. It is an instant job creator. It is an instant boost to the economy. It is an instant step into the future of where we should be. Like just just taking like transportation into into account here. The the fact that uh, we could have high speed rails. The fact that there could be highways that are designed for modern driving. Uh, and all the electric pe- cars exactly. And you know the promise here is uh, you know. Two million jobs and six percent growth, GDP growth. I mean, it's like uh, it would be a massive, you know, FDR-sized event in our country. And Lord knows that we need some kind of um, positive events of this kind to happen. And uh, and in built into it, and this is a little bit of a debate that I've been reading about, but built into it are a lot of climate change. Mm kind of uh, policies and um, green economy injections of investment. So uh, infrastructure week, there's actually some infrastructure to infrastructure week in that there's some there there, and that's a positive thing. We like that. Well, you know, before we move on to um, stuff that is a little bit juicier, infrastructure Mm -hmm. is important and such a win and such a boon to everything we, we could want as Americans. The one thing that I've been thinking about a lot this week, and you just reminded me of it when you brought up the fact that it's uh, related to climate change and has so many other tentacles within infrastructure. When I was, I was a White House intern before my senior year of college, and I worked in a little department called Cabinet Affairs, and the 
department is sort of the liaison between all the different cabinet secretaries and the White House. And so in that office, you actually get to see such a cross-section of what the federal government and the executive branch is actually doing outside of the West Wing and how coordinated it all is with with the White House and all the different executive offices and, and cabinet officials and all that stuff. It's, it's a fascinating look at how the government actually works at such a high level. But uh, I was there this summer that Deepwater Horizon happened. Um, mm. And at the same time, the Recovery Act was in full swing. And the person who I was sort of reporting to was Joe Biden as vice president at the time. And he obviously didn't know who I was. And um, he called me young lady every time I saw him, which I found very charming. Um, but I sat in a meeting with him every Thursday where uh, it was reported to him what was happening at all the different agencies for the Recovery Act. And the Recovery Act in the wake of um, the Great Recession was really a lot of infrastructure shit. It was roads and highways and broadband and all that stuff that was designed to get people back to work and to move the country along and to help boost the economy after such a dismal few years. And I got to see just how much falls under that sort of recovery infrastructure name. And it's it really mm -hmm. is, it is not just the typical things you think about, the stuff that the Department of Energy was doing was very different than what the Department of Transportation was doing. And, you know, the EPA is involved and all different organizations and agencies do so many different things that go into infrastructure that don't fall in our typical sight line and, and way we think about infrastructure. And so I think there's so much that's going to be part of that that I find Ports, really interesting. for instance. Exactly. Things you couldn't even imagine. I used to have to compile a report every week to send to the vice president's office. And um, the agencies would send me over like 25 pages of what they had done that week. And it was so sweeping and massive. And I couldn't believe that all these things were happening. And the 25 pages had probably been condensed down from hundreds of pages of what was happening all across the country. And I would have to condense it down to like one page to send to the vice president's office. And uh, it was really stunning just just how much uh, needed to be done and how much they were actually doing. And, and all of this is to say Joe Biden has a lot of experience with this because I literally watched him experience it. And uh, I'm excited for what it means for us as Americans and for our economy and that uh, I think we have someone who actually like knows what they're doing and how to handle this as opposed to uh, fake branded weeks that just really turned into chaos cycles as they were. Yeah. Well, and as somebody who I'm presently in the market for an electric car mm. and I'm looking around and I'm thinking, wow, there's going to be a time when the entire country, you can drive across the entire country and it's set up for electric cars. It's going to be a, a major turning of the historic page when the country's actual road system is set up for that. And what a, you know, we think of it as like, you know, just in terms of our personal use and, you know, but to make it national is on the level of, you know, helping create, you know, the interstate highway system. It's like an electric version of that would be a, a massive scale 
event. Couldn't agree more. We have one electric car and it's amazing. And to not think about, uh, I mean, obviously it does incredible things for the environment and whatever, but not thinking about having to go to a gas station is really phenomenal, particularly for someone who has not driven for a really long time until I spent this last year in California. Uh, it really is such a nice thing to not have to think about. I will say that California is pretty set up for electric cars. It's, it, we, we find superchargers all over the place and Mm -hmm. it's, it's easy for us if we are going on a long drive though. Um, our newest version of the, of the car has, has a much bigger capacity, which is really nice. We don't really have to think about it. But I remember uh, before we had the newest version of this car, we would go to Santa Barbara. And sometimes if we were not thinking quite as far ahead, we'd have to stop for for a charge. And, you know, it's, it's totally set up for that here in California. I don't think that is the case for much of the rest of the country, but it really does revolutionize things. And it's such a cool thing to think about going forward. And I just driving this car, it's hard for me to think about going back. Like, I don't think I'd ever buy another car again that is not an electric car because what is the point, right? Everything right. about it just feels like this is this is progress for a reason. We didn't do this because it sounds cool. And in economic terms, the amount of money that I spend on gas from week to week to week, you know, I have children, I shuttle them around, so I'm doing a lot of shuttling. And uh, that's a huge cost. And then when we actually look at the the cost of the electric car and trips, you know, it makes economic sense. And so, you know, these kinds of efficiencies, I'm just so happy that this is what the Biden administration is focusing on and these kinds of things. And, you know, there's, there's going to be a huge political battle ahead. But when I think about, you know, people who may have voted for Trump or maybe conservative and may oppose this on whatever grounds they're going to oppose it on, should it happen and our roads and bridges start getting rebuilt and jobs are created, I can see this having a very profound effect on the political situation in the country over the long term. So I also get hopeful about that. There's nothing more popular than infrastructure. So yeah. uh, it really, you know, you see the poll numbers of Joe Biden's handling of the pandemic thus far which I think are well above 70%. That is incredible given the fact that, you know, we are not out of the woods yet. There are thousands of people still being infected with with COVID-19. We are, you know, depending on how quickly we continue to roll out these vaccines and how quickly the variants spread across the United States and, and, and how we are able to sort of allocate the vaccines to places that are surging. You know, we could be headed into a a period that no one really wants to go back to. I'm optimistic that we will be able to head off a major wave here, but we are definitely not at the total end of it. I think we can all agree that we see serious, serious light at the end of the tunnel. And we are so close, but we are not, we've not arrived. Um, We have to stay disciplined. It's true. And I'm even around me and my local seen, I can see that people are getting excited, they're getting vaccinated, but not everybody's vaccinated, but there's the level of excitement leads to kind of a loosening of your behaviors and the masks start becoming less, you know, they start sliding below the nose and down around the chin more often. And you just start to see 
people want it so bad and at the same time that you have to be careful right at this moment and we all totally know it, this but totally it's uh, it's a good to be reminded that you need to stay on your on your game yeah well i mean the fact that that we are not quite there yet and biden's approval on this is so high i think uh you know bodes well for him taking on something like infrastructure on that note of of uh staying vigilant i've had um I've had uh, some tests of my will over the last week. Oh, I yeah. get my Tell second. I get my second shot on Saturday, and I'm very excited. And uh, I truly cannot wait. And I would say that a large portion of my friends and all of my family, thank God, are vaccinated right now. Um, I'm like one of the last in my just small circle of people who's not fully vaccinated. And uh, I'm not the only one. And I know that there are so many people out there who have not yet had access to this. And I hope and pray and know that that is coming soon for everybody. Um, but I have had a couple of things recently that um, uh, birthday celebrations and invitations to do things that I would never in a million years ago, uh, in a million years three weeks ago or four weeks ago or five weeks ago or any longer than that have said yes to. And uh, I said yes to them thinking like, well, everyone's vaccinated. I'm okay. And then I got, you know, in, in the face of them this week, closer to them actually happening, a friend had a birthday party and I really wanted to celebrate it. And he had said that 90% of the people going were vaccinated. And the day of, I woke up and I was like, what the fuck am I doing? I'm not vaccinated. I'm not going to a birthday party where this person who I trust is saying 90% of the people are vaccinated, but I'm not fully vaccinated. I have one vaccine. I don't know if all of them are fully vaccinated. And I, I really like t tested myself uh, and I want to live life and I don't want to have fear, but I think uh, I decided not to go to the birthday party and I don't know if that's the right decision, but it felt right for me in the moment. And I thought to myself, like, we are so close. I'm yes. personally so close. We are as a society so close. Why Why am I risking it now? I've literally done nothing for more than a year. Like everyone should just, for this next period of in-between time, what's the point? Like the, one, one birthday party, one trip, one, you know, dinner at a friend's house. It all sounds so nice. And I would have loved to be there, but I felt like it just wasn't worth the thing. Mm -hmm. And I think if we can all just sort of take those pauses, even as we're getting so excited and it feels so close and just, you know, I don't want to be fearful to live my life once I'm fully vaccinated. All of the science is pointing to this being Yes. A fucking miracle. And I don't want to lose sight of that. And I don't want to let the fear and the PTSD of the last year continue to creep into our life. Like there is no point in, in the science rushing the way it rushed and all the money and the time that went into it and, and all the good things that happened. I don't want to let those go to waste. And I don't, I, you know, I, I got the shot and I don't want my dose to be in vain. Like I want to, I want to be able to live my life. But I also don't want to be stupid because I have this, you know, desire to live my life. So I think if we can all just be smart and reasonable and not live in fear, but also not live in idiocy, the, the middle ground there is probably where we should remain for the foreseeable future. 
Hi, I'm Michael Calori, the co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. And I'm Lauren Good, the other co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. Get ready to dive deep into the cultural phenomenon that's been shaping conversations, sparking movements, and breaking barriers for over a decade. The new three-part docuseries, Black Twitter, A People's History, based on the groundbreaking Wired cover story by Jason Parham, explores everything from the fun, games, and inside jokes that characterize the early years of Black Twitter, to the social movements, the voices, and the hashtags that made Black Twitter an influential force in nearly every aspect of American political culture. Join us as we unravel the threads of this digital community, tracing its origins, celebrating its triumphs, and exploring its impact on society at large. Watch the series from Onyx Collective in association with Wired Studios, premiering on Hulu on May 9th. Well, I think you made the smart move. And I just did the same thing. I was supposed to go visit some relatives for the holiday weekend, Easter coming up, and uh, we changed our minds because, you know, the numbers in the place where they live were spiking. And, you know, you're thinking, that doesn't make sense. We're all either half vaccinated or fully vaccinated, but... You just can't take the chance and you don't want to be a part of the problem. You want to be a part of the solution. That's exactly right. Speaking of idiocy. Uh, When you said the word stupid, I immediately flashed to our next topic. Sometimes the world just rolls out right in front of you. And that's just what happened here. I've never felt like a story was bound to happen more than I felt when I saw a breaking news alert from the New York Times earlier this week about... Congressman Matt Gates. Did you feel that way? The first thing I thought was, here's a guy who is a sort of molding himself in, in the Trump mold and probably was thinking while Trump was in office, I can get away with anything. I can do anything. And then they keep acting like that after Trump leaves office. And now they're all sort of exposed and they no longer have their mob boss sort of uh, protecting them. And it sort of all makes so much hideous sense for this sort of like grifter par excellence, right? This guy is just like a um, weird mashup of like a televangelist and a teen pop star of some kind. You know, he's got this terrible hair and this kind of grimacing smile that makes you kind of ill. And he's a car salesman uh, who got way like billion times more power than he ever should have had, and then has all of the kind of worst impulses uh, enabled. And now you're seeing, of course, this was going to be the case with this guy. Now, we have just the outline of knowledge about what has happened here, but it seems like there is a, uh, we're just seeing the top layer of the iceberg here. Can you, like, what's your understanding of, like, basically what we know? Well, I was talking about it with Lee because he's, like, in a pre-production hole on a show. And so he'll emerge at at the end of a very long day, not having uh, kept up with the news as, as you and I have, and I'll catch him up. And, and he was like, what's this happening with Matt Gates? And I was like, honestly, I don't fucking know because we have just barely scratched the surface. I believe of what is happening. The allegations seem very real. You are not a, uh, obviously the, The investigation began under Attorney General 
Bill Barr in the Trump administration, which I think is a really important thing to note. This is not... And fascinating. Fascinating. I mean, there was no greater... I'm struggling to think of a greater Trump lackey in Congress. I mean, maybe besides Lindsey Graham, but I don't even know. Jim Jordan, maybe. but, But the difference with Gates and these other guys are is Gates has never met a microphone he did not like. He was very vocal on Twitter. He is the spreader of many a conspiracy theory. He was very vocal about uh, Hunter Biden, about Michael Cohen. You know, he really, he did not shy away from any controversy and throwing anyone else under the bus for completely- uh, Attention. For attention and and to trump up scandal to sort of draw- attention right. away from what the Trump administration was doing or to stoke his base or to to win himself coveted time slots on Fox News or whatever it was, you know, he did not shy away from any of this stuff. So the fact that it began under the Trump administration is a very important point. No one can call this a political uh, retaliation under the Biden administration. And, you know, the Justice Department did not set out to find this on, on Matt Gates, it came up as part of another investigation right. in which uh, someone else was the target. But he is now the subject or a subject in that investigation. And that's no joke. That's not like, oh, we like maybe heard something that we're going to poke into or a reporter is like sniffing around on a tip that they got. This is the real deal. And I think, um, you know, the allegations are incredibly serious. And what has been the most stunning to me is his response and his reaction in the wake of it. It's it's possibly the worst handling of a crisis I've ever seen in public political life. He immediately started going down the road of this is an extortion attempt, which maybe... It is It is certainly possible that this is an extortion attempt. If I had to put money on this being an extortion attempt and that being all it is, I would not take that bet. <laughs> but it, it's such a crazy thing. It feels like all of those, um, like I was hacked kind of things where someone will have tweeted something completely embarrassing And then their response was, I was hacked, it wasn't me, and they were never hacked, and it was always them. That sort of felt like the same vibe I was getting about the the extortion attempt and uh, his explanations that his dad had been wearing a wire to prove the fact that it was an extortion attempt. I've never really heard someone freely admit that they were wearing a wire for law enforcement. That's just not how wires and law enforcement work. Uh, so it just seems very fishy, and I have a sense that if something seems fishy around Matt Gates, it's it's fishy. It definitely has the sort of like Anthony Weiner uh, sort of stench to it. Totally. And you know he is a performance artist. That is the kind of politician he is. That is the Trump mold, right? So if you have a big scandal or an issue coming at you. You create a big performance artist art over here. And he tried to do it on the Tucker Carlson show. Did you watch that? It was so bizarre. And you could see that it was so ineffective. He was so um, terrible at trying to explain his excuse that even Tucker Carlson was like, no, I'm not attaching myself to this. So 
it could be an extortion attempt because it's true also is the other thing, you know. Um, sure. So, and he's just, look, he's trying to focus us on the extortion rather than the fact that they had the goods on him. And and the goods, just for those listening, and you may know the surface here, is that he supposedly was having a relationship with a 17-year-old and paying to uh, have her travel with him, right? And it's sort of, it's a little uncertain, like, uh, what the legalities of that are, whether that constitutes kind of trafficking, sexual trafficking. You know, in, in Florida, uh, it is illegal for him to have dated a 17-year-old, whereas in Washington, D.C., it is not, strangely. So, Wait, what uh, is, is it? Is it I, know in, I know in Pennsylvania, it is illegal, like there are certain age differences that are legal if you're a minor. So if you're 17, you can have a relationship with a 19-year-old or something like that. But if the person is 27, it is still illegal. Every state has a different thing, which seems crazy to me. It feels like the kind of yeah. thing that if you're under 18, it should be illegal to have an, a relationship mm-hmm. with an adult. Um, the legality here is that uh, he allegedly had a relationship with a minor who he then paid to travel with him across interstate lines, which is the illegal part. Um, It has to be a quid pro quo of some kind. There has to be some sort of sexual relationship involved in the traveling, whatever. Matt Gates's statement that he gave to Axios after this broke or interview in which he said, you know, it's basically, I'm paraphrasing, it's not a crime to treat your the women you date well, and of course I treated them to travel. Um, But a 17-year-old is not a woman, it's a child. So let's just put that out there. And and he has said that, you know, in very carefully worded language that he never had a relationship with a minor. Um, I'm sure that will either be tested and proven to be true or, or tested and proven to be false. And I have no doubt that we will get to the bottom of that answer and I hope that it happens in a way that is completely sensitive to a woman who may or may not have been involved in this and, and that her identity is protected and her life is not in any way harmed further by her involvement or alleged involvement with Matt Gates. That is like the worst case scenario in my mind. I hope that the media, I hope that political operatives, I hope that investigators give her the best shot of living a normal life after all of this. With that said, the interview with Tucker Carlson was bananas. And if you haven't watched it, go watch it. Obviously, the extortion stuff seemed crazy to me. Uh, The explanation stuff seemed crazy to me. But what I really loved was watching Tucker Carlson's face as Matt Gates tried to pull him into the scandal. I've never seen anything like it. I think Tucker said... That was one of the craziest interviews I've ever done. What he, what, what Matt Gates did, for those of you who haven't seen it, was he said, you know, I was, you were with me when I was with this girl. You and your wife were That's there. Right. We were having dinner and yeah. blah, 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 blah. And, and Tucker's face yeah. just went blank. And it yeah. was like, I, he was like, I have no recollection of that. And by the way, I'm sure he was there. I'm sure that, that he's not dragging him into it needlessly. Um but it, it was. Yeah, but he did it, it on live TV so that Tucker, yeah, to test Tucker's, um, you know, willingness to be a party to this. And Tucker's like, hmm. And of course, he had his like classic constipated Tucker Carlson face. Totally. Um, which in almost every 
way is obnoxious and terrible to look at, but in this case was sort of funny. The bottom line is that Matt Gates, we've always known, and there's a people like Trump, but Matt Gates certainly fitting into this, that they're kind of professional scumbags. And you can't do anything about it until it, you know, reaches one of these kinds of crises where they're, where they, it is shown conclusively what you've kind of known all along, which is they're not in this game of politics to do anything other than, you know, elevate their egos and get money and sex and all these kinds of things that, you know, why don't you go do a reality show in Hollywood or something? But instead, they've taken their reality show to Washington, which is kind of like a thing that we know is it's the new template for uh, the right wing. But, uh, you know, we know that the thing that Matt Gates probably did is he looked at Trump and he and a lot of these politicians have done this. They see him. He's he was Teflon. Right. He could get away with all these things and have prostitutes and pay them off. And and really, there never was any really legal recourse yet that could touch him. But uh, I don't think Matt Gates is going to survive this if it's true. I don't think he has that power. And it's the hubris of it that I think about a lot. His, he's finally realizing, oh, I can't just get on Fox News and have them paper this over for me. You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo, Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. You know, it... I always think about every time something like this happens with a politician, um, I always think about the hubris. I think it, it's definitely not just people who are related to President Trump. It is politicians since the dawn of time. Clinton, think of Bill Clinton did the same thing. You know, Edwards, Anthony Weiner, uh, Elliot Spitzer, the list, Mark Sanford, the list can go on and on and on and on. Mm-hmm. These are just people from the last, you know, 15 years. And, uh, you know, it's a real chicken and egg situation. Did you get into politics because you were a shithead or were you a shithead because you were into politics? And I don't right. know what the answer is. It's probably some combination of of the two of those things. But we have seen it over and over again. I'm sure we will continue to see it over and over again. Power is a hell of a drug. And um, the kind of people who are drawn to that kind of power are addicts. And uh, it's really, it's a stunning thing to watch over and over again. The thing that I think about with Matt Gates that is so interesting is uh, we saw a little preview of it with Tucker Carlson. I don't think he's the kind of guy who wants to go down alone, right? If he's going to, if he's going to leave, he's going to torch the place, right? And I think you know, rightly or wrongly, people are going to be burned in this, whether or not it has anything specifically to do with these allegations. It seems like he does not want to be the only one who who flames out here. And he's not a guy who I'd want to have on my opposing side. He just seems like right. he plays real dirty. 
and um, I guess guess your get your popcorn for that. The, the other thing about Matt Gates that brings me to something I wanted to bring up with you is you know he has this string of tweets that were not recent, but over the years he has sort of tweeted things about um, you know like wanting he he had replied to Elon Musk saying, you know, Elon said, if I ever have a scandal, I want, I want it to be called Elon Gate. And Gates uh-huh. responded saying, if I ever have a scandal, I want mine to be Gatesgate. And I think oh, we dear. have gotten his, his, his Gatesgate. He's arrived to his moment. It got me thinking yeah. about, about something I've been feeling around Twitter. And everyone now, especially as it relates to you know, the period of accountability that we're in and, and uh, people paying attention very closely to what others have said long ago in the past or in the recent future um, and holding them accountable for what they did and or what they said or what they tweeted. And, you know, the, the phrase never tweet has really proliferated in many of the conversations I've been having. And, you know, I obviously we professionally have to tweet and that's not totally an option for us. But I will say I don't really tweet anymore and I don't use Twitter at nearly the same frequency that Mm -hmm. I did. And I, I was thinking about it a lot last night and like the act of tweeting now to me, tweeting my opinions about a situation or my observations about an award show or an event that has happened, the Super Bowl it seems so cringe. And for mm-hmm. years, that's what, what I did. And that's what everyone did. And, and you would throw your two cents in about anything that anyone on the Twitter sphere was talking about. And I now, I, I don't know if it's because I'm like geographically separate to so many of the people that I have followed and sort of participated in, in conversations with, but I really find it like kind of ick. And I'm like, what is this weird internet world Mm -hmm. that seems to govern so much of uh, what this tiny niche conversation is? And everyone cares what everyone thinks. And you're measured by your retweets and your followers. And I lose hundreds of followers now because I just don't tweet anymore. And and I used to care about that. And I now Mm -hmm. just do not give a shit at all. And maybe that's not professionally great. But I think mentally, I just can't get, I, I just can't get myself there anymore. Like who cares what I, I I have a podcast, so I guess I have to think on some level, I do like talking about what I'm thinking, but I guess putting it out in a, in a tweet just feels ick to me. I don't know. I'm, I'm, it's just something I'm like personally struggling with. Well, it's funny you say that because uh, my, my recent thought, and it was just in the last couple of days, and I've done this once before, is the ability to uh, there are software and websites and that will allow you just to e- evaporate your entire Twitter yes. timeline. You can keep your account, but you could just be there and you don't have any tweets anymore. Tweet delete. And uh, I was I'm thinking I'm not thinking I am going to, to be doing this, and uh, I think I'm going to take a break from it. I'm and just, what's, uh, the, I, what's I, the upside? There, yeah, that's the thing. It's like. Um, if I have something that I really want the world to know about, I'll go out there, I'll send you a link about a story I wrote or a podcast I made, and I think that's worthwhile. But um, engaging in the kind of indiscriminate scrum of the news and 
if I don't have anything to bring to it other than just an attitude, which is mostly what Twitter is, it does. And, and I think the the scales have fallen my, from my eyes post-Trump. It totally. really, when, when you start to see the news kind of um, get sort of disaggregated among lots of little small stories, and it just becomes kind of, um, it, it has lost its focus. And, and thankfully for all of us, <laughs> you know, we're not all on there screaming at the same uh, horrible event. Um, and so now that we are here, it's all part of like us regaining our sanity a little bit and regaining a little bit of ourselves. And you know what? Just because you're doing something doesn't mean it needs to be telegraphed and in fact may be more sacred if you don't do that. <laughs> you know, it, it may have more substance if you just don't let other people know about it. And I couldn't agree more. I got, I got advice once from a mentor of mine um, regarding television news and it completely governed the way that part of my career, I, I operated within that part of my career. And this person said to me, never go on TV if you're not able to say, my reporting shows. Like, mm. don't just be a Smart. talking head. Don't just go on to sit there for an hour, two hours, three hours, and just schmooze and, and give your opinions. Like, go on, accept the invitations when you have your own original reporting. And I completely listened to that in my television career. And I always felt good about it. Like I always felt like I was additive rather than like, I'm a seat in a chair, I'm a face in a box. And I was just like, you know, gumming off about something. Like it, it felt like I had something to say that I was bringing real substance. And that's sort of how I feel about Twitter now, where it's like, if I'm writing something, I will tweet it out. If I am talking about something on the podcast, we will tweet it out because that is substance that we're putting in, out in the world. In terms of my opinions, we can share them here. I can share them with my friends and family. I can share them with you privately, Joe. Uh, I don't know that I need to tweet them out. Who needs, who in the world needs that? I don't know. Maybe, maybe we're just evolving past that medium and maybe that medium for me personally just feels attached to an era that I don't want to live through anymore. I think that may be what it is. Well, let me tell you something, a little story. I don't want to out this person, but there's a prominent Twitter personality with an enormous following who I can tell as the Trump years are now over, has been in a state of like almost like OCD desperation, trying to kind of keep their what for a long period of time was their massive following kind of mm -hmm. you know, like this is a person who every tweet they did had like, you know, 3,000, 4,000, 5,000 likes or whatever, right? They had a big following. And uh, it was like a Saturday night. And this person texted me and said, hey, maybe you want to get on this. Um, oh, what's this like new audio one that everybody's in, uh, talking about? The Clubhouse. They said, well, you should join Clubhouse and, and uh, maybe you want to come in here because I'm going getting in on this Clubhouse thing. And I thought, and that's when I was like, wow, this is kind of like a you know, our media version of a mental illness. You the know, party's over, should... man. The party's yeah. over. Just go home. The party's over. Yeah, the party's over. Well, this is what we were saying last time. And I was telling you that as a journalist, I'm feeling, you know, my version of the post-pandemic, you know, giddiness 
is that we're going to go out there and interview people in person and do oh. long form journalism again. You know? I'm so because excited. Because that's what the world is should be excited about. That's what we can bring to you, dear listener, in the print form is that we're professionals who can go out and interview people and do big stories and provide context and, you know, anecdotes and great stuff that, you know, you can, uh, you don't need to know our opinion about it. You can just see what we've written. And uh, I'm looking forward to doing more of that as the uh, months unfold and we can go back out in the world and and be jur- the journalists that we were meant to be. And there is a big temptation in the journalism class, and there has been ever since I've been in it, to just uh, transfer your skill set to be a cable news talking head, to be an analyst on cable news, uh, to be on Twitter and have a giant following. And I do feel like that um, it's time to kind of get back to basics and to kind of strip away some of that stuff. And, you know, to me, everybody's going to win, you know, because, um, you know, I'm, I think sometimes about, and I recently thought about this, that um, I think it was like Edgar Allan Poe said, like, the greatest experience you can have is like a short, you know, story that you sit in a reading chair and read. And you've got these stacks of New Yorkers that are piling up in your house. But you know what? When you finally get around to reading one of those articles and you're sitting there, and you finished it and you were involved, it's such a satisfying, substantial experience of journalism. And stay tuned, ladies and gentlemen, because both Emily and I will be providing stories like that for you in the coming year in the pages of Vanity Fair magazine. But um, but that is what we should be thinking about. And that's the promise of us breaking away from things like Twitter. I have such a fantasy list of the stories that I want to work on in the next year. And obviously I have an actual list of stories I'm actually working on in the next year, but mm-hmm. I really do like, I am desperate to write a scene of oh, yeah. a, a description of an event or a person that I actually met in person. Yeah. Yeah. Like that is, that's the kind of writing I know that you like to do. It's the kind of writing I like to do. It's been really difficult to not be able to do that over the last year and to, you know, obviously there are other ways to write into things and there have been so many pressing stories to tell that have nothing to do with that kind of reporting. But we are so lucky to work for a place like Vanity Fair where that kind of storytelling is present and valued. And, you know, the tendency over the last five years where what was rewarded was you know, you're following on Twitter or you're, you know, how many scoops you got and, you know, the rat race of covering in a crazy administration where there were so many scoops to have. And I got caught up in it and it was so easy to get caught up in it. But I actually feel like that is not, maybe that feeds some people. And to them, if that feeds them, go forth, continue to live your life like that. And that that is your passion. And, and I'm so happy that you found your passion. That is not actually my passion, even though I, you know, it's easy to get caught up in. And I just feel like we now have the breath and the understanding that you don't have to do that in order to be a journalist anymore. Your, your skill as a journalist is not your Twitter following. And, um, I think getting back to what I'm passionate about and what you're passionate about and not having that 
pressure because you realize it's all kind of bullshit is such a nice thing. And I'm really, really looking forward to it. Um, mm -hmm. And I think next week we're going to be able to talk about this book that I read this week that I can't quite talk about yet. Um, but it really, it inspired me to think about writing honestly and writing truth and writing around news, but off news. And uh, I can't wait to talk all about it with you. And I think it, it, it just made me feel like that's the kind of storytelling that we should be going in. And we haven't had the chance to really talk about it the same way we started this conversation talking all about infrastructure week, not as a joke. It's all in the same vein. We're getting back to normal um, things that are feel like progress, things that feel like they feed you. And I guess as the world starts to open up again, as the, the Trump stench fades away, as the crazy rat race of the news cycle dies down, it's all moving in the same direction that feels so cathartic and like such a breath. And mm. I feel like we should use it as a renaissance period to really connect with what we love to do, what we're good at doing, what we didn't have the time to focus on, the people we want to actually share it with. Um, just feels like a really good thing. I feel very optimistic. I'm taking a page out of your book, Joe. I love it. I think there's lots of reason to be optimistic. Vigilant about our masks but optimistic about the future that is over the horizon. And one of the fruits of all of this vigilance, patience, and, you know, suffering that we've had to undergo uh, will be that uh, you're going to start seeing um, more journalism that is created by people who are out in the world telling you what the world looks like again. And we'll be documenting the world as it returns to quote unquote normalcy or the life that we want it to be. Totally. And by the way, our listeners, yeah. tell us what you want to see. Tell us what yeah. the kind of, if, if you are living in parts of the country where Joe and I don't live, tell us what we're missing. If, if there are things that you know that you think are important or indicative of bigger things, you know, we, we can't be everywhere. So if you tell us yeah. where we should be, maybe we'll get to go there. And that's the beauty of what we do. And we just love to hear from you guys. On that note, Joe, let's get ready for next week. Have a great, happy Easter to those who celebrate a great end to Passover for those who celebrate that. And for uh, people who celebrate neither, find a, a reason to celebrate this weekend. And we will see you right back here next week. Thank you to my co-host, Joe Hagan. If you enjoyed this conversation, please be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, radio.com, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. Thank you to Brett Fuchs for his great production work and the folks at Caden 13 for their hard work on this too. And of course, thanks to our sponsors. Please support them any way you support this podcast. We will see you right here next week. Three, two, one. Political Breakdown is a daily politics podcast from KQED in San Francisco that goes deep into the issues you care about. 
I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. Look, 2024 is going to get weird. Who decides when there's been an insurrection or not? We're still in the innovation phase of AI. And that is where you see that they're not actually being equitable and trying to build a utopia where we can all use drugs happily together. <laughs> but whatever happens this election year, the KQED politics team is in this with you. Political Breakdown. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts.